Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that, <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to include all the pod courses? Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that we have four. We have first we have bite. One. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson. MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's topic falls in the fed, fun, and functional categories, and I am super excited because today, to kick off the 2020 on an amazingly high note, we are interviewing one of the greats in our field, the Melanie Potak, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P. 
can I get a New Year's drum roll? And fireworks. Kapow, kapow. Um, yes, those are Michelle Dawson's sound effects for your listening pleasure. Okay, so Melanie is the guru behind several award-winning books, Raising a Healthy, Happy Eater, a Stage-by-Stage Guide to Setting Your Child on the Path to Adventurous Eating, and Adventures in Veggieland. Help your kids learn to love vegetables with 100 easy activities and recipes. Not to mention her CD, Dancing in the Kitchen, songs that celebrate the joy of food. And her newest book, which I have on great authority, will be available in Spanish and English in like a week or two. And the title is You Are Not an Otter, the story of how kids become adventurous eaters. So... Yeah, I'm a fan. Um, I'm out of breath. I'm blushing uh, because she's here and also because her approach incorporates the use of food and all she does. And if we want to get a kiddo eating, well, then they need to experience the heart and joy of a home. It's a kitchen. And on a personal note, she is really truthfully one of the kindest humans I have ever met. She is as graceful as she is gracious. And if her recipes don't win you over, and they're really good, um, then her heartfelt laughter is sure to. So I am grateful that our paths have crossed, almost quite literally, and I'm grateful to have her and her wisdom here today. So Melanie, thank you for kicking off 2020 with me and all the First Bite folks. Yay, you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, I'm I'm just gonna record that intro and play it every single morning for the entire year. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what a way to start my day. Well, I mean, it's true. I have met I have met folks that were they were wise and they were incredibly well respected, but um, you know, they're they you know, with brains doesn't always come a warm heart and you do, you, you're like the full package and I'm like, yay. So that it just, it makes me happy. So thank you. Oh, <laughs> gosh, thank you. I feel the same way about you. <laughs> uh, I, I get lucky every once in a while. You know, I did read a research article just recently that said um, uh, people who have a colorful vocabulary um, are some of the most honest people. And I feel like I fall in that category given the <laughs> amount of editing that the guys do behind the scenes. But like, uh, I'm hoping kindness and um, a Navy daughter, army wife's um, vocabulary fit the bill. So yay, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so your, um, your resume and your knowledge is, it's extensive, and um, I I'm a huge fan of the adventures in Vegilian. I like the recipes. Um, uh, we my tiny human Theodore he he does not like to eat grilled cheese or as he calls it hot bread with cheese. But you know what? He'll eat smoked salmon. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. You might be a feeding therapist kid when you eat smoked salmon, but not hot bread and cheese. <laughs> but uh, that's how, where did you get your inspiration for all of those? I, I really got my inspiration before I ever became a speech language pathologist from my youngest daughter and actually my older daughter too. Uh, God gave me two beautiful girls and the, uh, my first one was a very adventurous eater. And I honestly kind of thought, 
I am so good at this, you know, (laughs) aren't I a great mom? Look at my kid eat. And this is way before I ever became an SLP and got a defeating. This is just me as a mom because raising my children was everything to me as it should be. And then God gave me my younger daughter, Carly, and she was my very picky eater. And when I approached my pediatrician about it, you know, well-meaning, he kind of wanted just to alleviate my worry, but we hear this all the time. Eh, you know, all kids are picky, she'll grow out of it. And that was kind of the end of it. But in my heart, I knew there was more to this for her and that it was really creating a lot of anxiety, uh, not only for her, but for our entire family. And that's what got me thinking about, wow, this impacts everyone in the family and even the extended family. And I better figure out a way to keep this fun and joyful. And I better figure out a very systematic approach. That's the way I approach everything when it comes to problem solving. And um, I went on to become a speech language pathologist, actually specializing in augmentative communication, which I don't do anymore at all. But I I, had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I was an AAC specialist. And just between you and me, I wasn't very good at it. (laughs) Well, shoot. Now I think thousands of people just learned that. But um, I wasn't very good at it. And I knew in my heart it really wasn't my passion. And so, as luck would have it, I got a job in the NICU and I really just relied on more experienced therapists to teach me what they knew. And then I realized I've got to take a lot of courses. And that's what I did. I just started taking course after course after course until eventually um, it I, my home-based therapy practice eventually turned into 100% feeding kids. And you know, Michelle, I know you'll say the same thing. You get all that foundational information that you absolutely have to have before you have these kids on your schedule. There's no doubt about that. But then when you actually get in there and start working with them, they are the best teachers. Yes. And and they teach you to get out of our silo of SLP world only mm-hmm. and how to look at all the other disciplines, GI, ENT, OT, I mean, even PT, incorporated. Yes. But it it has been very humbling to see the um, evolution in my practice going from like a smattering of everything to just those that I have been called to work with. And that's, um, and I know that there's folks out there listening that feel the exact same way. And how cool is it that we get to help on the healing path? That's, that's, that's pretty awesome. It's a pretty awesome job. It's a pretty awesome job. It's not an easy job, but boy, you're changing lives, you know, and it can often take years to get a child to a point where they are truly an adventurous eater, where they have that joy for food, but it's worth it. And the advantage for us is that we've seen kids go from the depths of picky eating. I mean, extreme picky eating or, or not eating at all to becoming very adventurous food explorers. And the, the, I think the, the grace of all that is we're able to share with the parents that this will get better and I'm going to show you how, but we're a team and we're going to get there step by step, but it is a very slow and steady 
uh, process because the kids didn't become extreme picky eaters overnight. In most cases, we might, you and I might chat about a few cases like that today, but in most cases, there's some history there and we've got a lot of unlearning to do. Yeah. There's, um, folks, typically when it's a sudden onset, you may want to consider psych, um, psychology, getting that involved because a lot of times that does fall in the realm of ARFIDs, avoidant food restrictive intake, but most that's, that it tends to be few and far between. Um, and actually bringing it up, I did have one little one that had a choking incident, ARFID diagnosis, worked with a great psych, and our last session was at a sushi restaurant. <laughs> so like, talk about adventurous eating. We went from nothing to sushi. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up avoidant restrictive food intake disorder or ARFID because that is really my passion. And, um, I have a new live five-hour course on that topic because we don't get a lot of education. Actually, I didn't get any um, around that in graduate school. As a matter of fact, when I was in graduate school, that diagnosis wasn't really in existence. It came out in the DSM-5. But I really have noticed that uh, many therapists are eager to learn more about that diagnosis. And um, what's interesting in my experience is Although the hallmarks of that diagnosis are, are that they may have, as you mentioned, uh, an episode around food, choking, et cetera, or vomiting, that kind of thing, or they may have sensory issues that are getting in the way of progressing through food. And there's several other hallmarks that we could get into. It really is a pediatric feeding disorder. Although we yes. can also use the term ARFID for adults, but we're focused on pediatrics in this chat today. And so because of that, I just, everyone listening, I want them to really understand, you're going to start to see that diagnosis become more prevalent as people start to understand what it really is. And we begin to get more kids diagnosed with ARFID. But the issue is the SLPs and OTs and other professionals in this realm can't make that diagnosis because it's in the DSM-5. So typically we see a psychologist, sometimes a psychiatrist, but most often a psychologist or a social worker make that diagnosis. And because of that, they don't get referred for these kids unless there's something that sort of happened overnight or the kids never really grew out of it, but the pediatrician can't quite put his finger on it. So he assumes it's psychological where the reality is when you look at the whole child, there's probably more to this than just that one incident. Isn't there's a, um, feeding matters has a position paper out on that. They do. They do. And it's one of the things I mentioned in my course is that they are hoping to have this diagnostic uh, code and terminology changed to uh, um, uh, to more accommodate the pediatric feeding disorder piece. And we won't go into that right now, but it's definitely something that I think will happen in the future. But in the meantime, I hope to educate more people with the diagnostic that we do have, which is ARFID. Yes. Okay. Where, okay, I kind of want to take that class. Where is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I am 
I have it booked in several places for 2020, but I do have a few spots still available if anyone would like me to come and teach it. Um, it's a five hour course and I currently have it booked in, uh, New Jersey, uh, Melbourne, Australia, Sydney, Australia, and, um, gosh, I can't remember the other one. So check my website, melaniepotok.com, because this changes all the time anyway, and you'll see where you can watch that course. But what I also have is a two-hour online course about pediatric feeding disorders and anxiety, which is what we're chatting about. So that's another good way just to get your feet wet around that diagnostic. And then from there, perhaps take the live five-hour course. Yeah, because... Um... I love you, but Australia is not impact us in 2020 budget. So like, I mean, Jersey might be, but I was almost run off the road. So um, if we do Jersey, Amy, you heard it here. I'm staying with you. I'm crashing at your house. (laughs) Okay, cool. Okay. So now I've had some tiny humans referred to me um, in the past after they've had the negative experiences, like we were talking about choking, um, especially with baby led weaning. Or when um, the quote-unquote baby-led weaning approach failed. Um, And typically, they ended up having an underlying allergy or in one of the cases, it was actually eosinophilic esophagitis. So I know that baby-led weaning can get a bad rap because I somehow always seem to be on the receiving end of it having gone south. But my gut says that that's circumstantial because all of those tiny humans had other underlying etiologies that just had yet to be discovered. Um, So can you please explain what exactly is baby-led weaning and how can one incorporate that um, into a mealtime to make it safe, effective, and joyful? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, The term baby-led weaning has been around for many years. As a matter of fact, years ago, I wrote an article for the American Speech-Language Hearing Association's blog explaining baby-led weaning and the concept essentially of baby self-feeding. And that's what that term refers to. The baby-led weaning, or BLW, we call it, was coined originally by Tracy Marquette and Jill Rapley uh, out of the UK, and they have several books on the topic. And I had the good fortune of interviewing Jill, and you know that she is a home health visitor, so she's not a speech-language pathologist. She's not a pediatric feeding specialist, the way we refer to this here in the states. And so, one of the things we want to consider is that she's talking about typically developing children, yet one out of four typically developing children will develop a pediatric feeding disorder. We know that from the research. So naturally, you're getting these kids on your caseload where the parents tried the BLW approach and whether there was something underlying or there was just too much gagging on going on and that in turn created an aversion or just fear in general from the, through the child or the parent, um, they're now seeing you for help. And one of the things that I often talk about in my courses is that we want to be respectful of the parent's desire to feed their child using a specific model. But what 
I would like them to do is make sure that they're always following the guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So that led me to write a book called Baby Self-Feeding by Ripton and Potok. And full disclosure, I actually make no money off of that book. I did it intentionally to give therapists and all parents the guidelines on how to do modified BLW to make sure that we keep gagging to a minimum and that we're providing safe face-to-face feeding practices. And one of the things I always encourage parents to really, really understand is that although the traditional BLW method talks about skipping purees and just offering the child whatever you're eating, we have to do that in a safe manner. And the research shows that that um, purees have a purpose. Purees have a purpose. You just don't want to linger there. We know that research shows that if children are on lumpy purees, meaning like stage two, past the age of nine months and not putting other more advanced foods in their mouth, that they will develop a feeding disorder. And that just makes sense because that represents a developmental delay. Um, So in my book, Baby Self-Feeding, or if you just want to go to my blog at melaniepotok.com and just search the tag Feeding Babies, you'll find, oh my gosh, I don't even know how many articles, so many articles it's, on how- It's a fair few. <laughs> on how to do it. Safe. Um, and the I would say if there is one piece of information that I want all of your listeners to take home, it is not- to put too much emphasis on this idea that gagging is good. And I'm saying that with air quotes. I wish you all could see me. I see this all the time where I see online BLW classes and um, uh, I see it in on Instagram, on posts. And of course, we know Instagram is God's truth. So... <laughs> This it's idea. right up there with all the Facebook forums. Yes, yes, Dr. Google. It, the thing is, is that gagging is a good thing because it protects our airway, but too much gagging will create a feeding aversion. And so I have noticed that the families who come to me who have been doing a BLW method, and who knows what that really means. Everyone has their own definition of that. But they're coming to me saying, well, we've been doing BLW and gagging is good, but now she won't eat anything. Well, that's- No, they're afraid. They're they're afraid or they don't have the ability to really manage the food in their mouth because of an oral delay, or they've been gagging so much that they're like, I don't really like food. I think I'll just stick to breast and bottle. No, thank you. And, um, you know, Learning to eat, uh, gosh, Michelle, I must say this on every single interview, learning to eat is a developmental process, just like learning to crawl, walk, run. And I want parents to understand that the fact that we're using a specific method to help a child learn to eat is fine, but not every method is the right fit for every child. And that's where our professional knowledge comes in to help to figure out what's working and what's not working and what we need to tweak. Okay. I'm just, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around the, the whole gagging is good concept because I, as soon as I see gagging, um, 
I was raised by my, my grandmother. My grandmother helped raise me and I cannot undo those memories. So as soon as I see a child gagging, I still, to this day, after having done this for so long, have to physically hold my hands back because I hear my grandmother in my head saying, grab them by the back of their, by their hands and whack them on the back. They're fine. (laughs) Old school Appalachia thought process every time. And so that's, that's kind of alarming, but what so what are they doing? They're just giving them like the, like a, I've seen broccoli bites where they're giving the Todd, like not toddler, but like, you know, the nine or 10 month old, just a raw broccoli. And yeah, well, if we really focus in on the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines for modified baby led weaning, which you can do with children with special needs too. Um, it, what what we're really focusing on is what I call squishable foods. So they're foods that the child can squish onto the roof of their mouth, onto the gum lines, and and mash and swallow. There is a misunderstanding because of so much information about BLW on the internet that children learn to chew first and swallow later with the BLW approach. But in actuality, that, as you know, doesn't follow the (laughs) developmental process of eating. (laughs) Children learn to swallow in the womb. So they they already know how to swallow. What they're referring to is what's commonly known as the tongue thrust reflex or the tongue protrusion reflex. For babies at about six months of age, when they put something in their mouth, reflexively, they push it back out with their tongue. Well, so two things Uh, is two parents come to me believing that two things are protecting their children, that the gagging is protecting the airway and that the tongue thrust reflex is protecting them from choking. Yes, it's helping, but it's not foolproof. And that reflex will begin to integrate shortly after they start solid foods. It's very important that when you're going to offer, whether it's purees or whether it's those soft squishables cut into strips, like about the size of your index finger or your pinky finger is what I recommend, or even just small pieces that they can rake up until they eventually develop their pincer grass to pick them up. Whether you're using any of those methods, you absolutely need to be face-to-face with every single child. Because if you rely on gagging and the tongue thrust reflex, what will happen is not gagging. What will happen is choking. And choking typically has very little to no sound. So if your back is turned and you're busy loading the dishwasher while your little one is finishing up lunch, 10 seconds later, you're going to turn around and you're going to see a very blue little baby in front of you. So I always try to stress to parents that we want to use the guidelines from the AAP on modified BLW methods. And that's what I go over in my book, Baby Self-Feeding, so that these kids have positive experiences with food. A little bit of gagging is fine. We want them to get used to the occasional gag. We all gag every once in a while, but too much gagging is not a good thing. So I would say gagging's okay, but I would never say gagging's good. Okay. So you're one of the very few SLPs that I have heard quantify the tongue thrust as a reflex. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people, because let's be honest, pediatric dysphagia is just now starting to be taught in schools. So 
the tongue thrust reflux actually, y'all, it integrates in. And when it does not fully integrate, you can transfer the word integrate for the word dissipates, kind of like the Babinski sign, the Babinski reflex with your toes. Um, when that does not fully integrate in or dissipate, that's when you have the evolution of tongue thrusting um, later on. It's, it's just one of the reflexes that has not integrated. Now, I have struggled. When do I consider it an unintegrated reflex for my um, developmentally delayed friends or my significantly neuroatypical friends? Um, when they're developmentally around 9 to 10 months and they've had a lot of exposure and PO opportunities, that's when I start referencing it as tongue thrusting because they haven't integrated. Do you have a timeline that you do that? Am I doing that right? Yeah, no, no, you, you are. And um, just side note is that it we, we typically in the literature call it a tongue protrusion reflex, but I tend to use the term tongue thrust because when we're talking about parents, that's the terminology they come to me with. So they're coming to me saying, you know, but he's going to thrust his tongue out and, and they're getting so much information on the internet. But let, let's talk about that integration for just a minute. And then also the difference between um, a reflex and a learned behavior. So we begin to see that protrusion where they push out the food instead of swallowing, it's not foolproof, we begin to see that slowly start to go away as they begin to learn to chew and manipulate the food in their mouth in a safe and effective manner. In a perfect world, typically developing children, we want them to develop what we call a mature swallow pattern at about 12, 13, maybe 14 months of age, but typically we say 12 months. And the kids who don't develop that mature pattern, and I'll explain what it is in just one moment, they have developed a learned behavior of how to move their tongue. So backing up, just to explain to everyone listening, your mature swallow pattern, and you can just Google that term or search that term on my website to really get in depth on it, is where the tongue tip rises up to the edge of the alveolar ridge, right where you say a T or a D. And then the rest of the tongue, in essence, squishes up into the roof of the mouth and it propels the food back. We call that a mature swallow pattern. But when kids know when they don't have that or what they often we often call a tongue thrust, that's now a learned behavior. It's no longer reflexive. And here's why. Babies learn from the reflex. So if they are, are pushing their tongue out, pushing their tongue out, and they have their thumb over their tongue, or they have a hard spout sippy cup over their tongue, or they um, have a, a bottle all the time over their tongue. They learn, oh, this is how I swallow. But then when it comes time to develop the mature swallow pattern, they've already learned that dance move in their mouth. They don't know the new dance step called the mature swallow pattern. And they come to us at about 15, 16 months, still pushing out food unless it's super soft and squishy. And they often tend to be kind of messy eaters. We love kids to make a mess, but I'm describing the child who 
they get a lot of food in the lateral sulci or the pockets of their cheeks, and they can't quite get it out. They have a lot of food in the corners of their mouth, and they're just, every time they swallow, their tongue pushes forward instead of elevating. And what happens? Food kind of squirts out between those cute lips. So um, at that point, it's now a learned behavior and a motor pattern that we need to help them um, unlearn, essentially, and learn the new dance step. It's muscle memory. Yeah. That's this. I love the way you explain that. Thank you. I'm just, I'm at, I have one particular one on my caseload and he is a happy squirter, not a happy spitter, not a happy squirter. <laughs> but we also have a little bit of hemiparesis to go with it. So there's definitely a little bit more of a squirt on one side than the yeah. other side. But the, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But Thank you know, you. That, see, that just makes so, so much sense because yeah. our whole uh, GI system, and I'm talking about from the moment the food goes in your lips to the moment, frankly, that you poop it out. You can say poop. We all love that word. Um, is, it's a, a series of pressures and valves. So if that little one's trying to close their lips, but the hemiparesis is preventing them from doing it, what's going to happen there is it creates enough pressure that it literally does squirt right out their mouth. So that's a beautiful yeah. visual. And um, gosh, that little yeah. sounds adorable. <laughs> he Yes. Um, the his puppy is even cuter, by the way. Uh, he, the mom goes, mm, we got it for him to, you know, grow up with, but I am really, I'm enjoying the puppy kisses. And I'm like, that's a great, like home health, like job benefit. You know, you get to like play with everybody else's tiny cute puppies and not have to do the, like the cleanup duty. Afterwards. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I saw you post yes. that on social media the other day. It was such a cute picture of that puppy oh. in your face. It was, we have wanted a Boykin Spaniel so bad. And then I go there and there's a Boykin and I'm like, stop. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, Mr. Dawson, I need a Boykin for my birthday. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So now on, on your website, you have something that you have coined the three easy E's. So what are your three easy E's and how can professional caregivers incorporate them into mealtime? Well, the three E's, that's something I've been talking about for years. When I first wrote Raising a Healthy, Happy Eater with pediatrician Namali Fernando, I would often, when I was was um, doing book signings and that kind of thing, I would talk to the parents about there's three E's when it comes to helping your child learn the fourth E, which is eat. The, the three E's are expose, explore, expand. And that's the path to adventurous eating. So shortly after that, I wrote Adventures in Veggie Land, which goes from fun to yum by following the three E's. And so every single vegetable in that book starts with a food activity, meaning food play. And that's what speech therapists, occupational therapists, those of us who are, are really in the trenches helping these kids learn to become adventurous eaters, we love to start with food play and parents are often a little bit surprised that we want the kids to play with their food. The reason why is that's the beginning of exposure and exploration. So the first two E's, expose, explore, kind of blend together. Exposure would be going to the grocery store and saying, find me something that's round, find me something that's heavy. 
find me something that we could peel. That's exposure, going to the farmer's market, um, even just bringing home the beets and letting the kids wash the dirt under the water at at the kitchen sink. That's exposure. When we start to get into exploration is when we begin to use a child safe knife to help cut up the food together. I'm focusing on vegetables at the moment, but this would apply to anything. And we begin to explore mixing foods together, cooking together, um, even, even exploring in terms of putting new things in our lunchbox without the expectation of ever eating it. All of that is part of the learning process and expand simply means that as we start to move through exposure and exploration and basically food fun and especially cooking together, that's when you start to see the children begin to expand into tiny tastes and a willingness to try a little bit more in terms of exposure. So those are the three E's, expose, explore, expand. And there are what I, I use those three E's with every single child I work with. It's the framework for everything I do. Okay. So I, I have seen this evolution in society where we don't do what my family calls it dinner table dinner. Right. And I feel like that's a huge part of the explore and expand and exposure that getting the kid doing all the preface work to get them to the table, but then having the exposure of this is a healthy meal time and sitting down and watching family members eat. And I, I, I don't know if it's just a, um, if it's just the hustle and the bustle, like typical after school activities, or you've got dance or karate and 400 things and big brother has this, and then, you know, somebody's working late, but do you see that as a, I mean, I feel like it's a huge deficit that the child's were not modeling a meal time together and they're it, missing so much of this. It, it is huge. It's huge. And, um, I also want to make it really clear if we have parents listening, and of course we do because professionals mm-hmm. are parents too, that our lives are really busy and trying to make family meal times a priority can feel very overwhelming to our family. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yet. There was excellent research done on the topic. As a matter of fact, it's in the very first chapter of Adventures in Veggie Land. And what it shows is that parents truly want to get back to family meal times. As a matter of fact, they rate that as a higher priority than even taking their family on a yearly vacation. That that tells me they want this information. They just don't know how to go about it, especially in our 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 nutty lives where we're all running around trying to get things done. We're all so busy. So a couple ideas around that, that I often share with my families is I know that this is a priority for this family. And let's see if we can't figure out just one time this week where you could spend 10, 15 minutes, even just having a cup of tea and a couple cookies together or maybe a snack, or maybe a meal, whatever's going to work into your week. Let's let's take a look at your calendar, and let's devote that one time to this. And here's why. 
Not only is it going to help that child learn to become an adventurous eater, the more we do that, and we're going to start with this one, but here's some motivation for you. We know that having family meal times, breakfast, dinner, whatever, at least three times a week improves test scores in um, science. We know that it improves reading and language development in young children. We know that when it comes to our teenagers, if they've experienced regular family meal times at least three times, five is preferable, that they are less likely to engage in um, drug use, drinking, um, have uh, early sexual relationships that they're not ready for, and that they have better peer relationships overall. And what does that do? It helps our overall mental health. And that's such a crisis in this nation. So when we think about the fact that just having family mealtimes is a huge priority for families, having them have that information of not only are you going to be able to connect with your kid around the dinner table and model good eating habits, because all of that is wonderful, you're also going to raise a healthier, happier child, both physically and emotionally and mentally. Hmm. We, um, my kitchen exploded last fall, like literally exploded. The dishwasher leaked in the floor and they had to gut the entire kitchen. Oh no. And it was, it was a huge blessing in disguise. I got a $21,000 kitchen upgrade and all I had to do was pay for like the out-of-pocket upgrade. So thank you, USAA. <laughs> but, um, and also I loved my contractor. So if you guys are in, you know, the Midland, South Carolina message me, they're the kindest people you'll ever meet. Um, but, um, it was, it really threw my family off because yeah. we do do dinner table dinners. And like, I honestly felt like I missed a huge chunk of October, November out of my life, like it was just gone, like weeks of my life had disappeared because we didn't have a kitchen and we were having to eat out because I had no stove and microwave. I mean, we had a fridge, but mm, you can only eat so many cold meals when you grew up Southern and you're ready for a hot meal to put, you know, carbs on your backside. But that was as on a personal level, I having it taken away once it's part of your world, I... I wholeheartedly feel that. But once we got it back, the kids were like, mommy, we missed this. And, and I was like, honey, mommy missed it too. So did daddy. <laughs> <laughs> no more pizza for the love of God. No more pizza. But um, yeah, but that's, I, I can, I can see that and I can feel that. And I, I, I would love it if there was a way within our practice that we could do therapy at dinner time with our patients and their families without it taking away from our own individual families like that to me like on the day that they invent time travel I will totally enjoy doing that because then we can help encourage and structure to get folks to the table and, I, yeah. I have to share that I I'm an empty nester. So I often do my assessment, my evaluations during family meal times because I, I yeah, I crazy. Visits, but I do that because I don't want to see it go well. You know, it doesn't help me if I see the kid eating well, I'm there to see what isn't going well. And, and not only the child's 
difficulty, but the parent's response to that difficulty. It's never the parent's fault, but they do parent these children differently than they ever intended. And that's just because the, the, the feeding is based on relationships, you know, and those relationships change and they also shift the whole family dynamics. One of the things that I love that you just said to me, Michelle, is that your kids came back and said, mommy, I miss this. That is so important to real the, the kids really, really want this family time together. Um, it reminded me, you mentioned in the introduction about my new children's book, You Are Not an Otter, the story of how kids become adventurous eaters. That particular book really brings that same message home because, and I know you didn't know that when you brought it up, you know. No, really, I haven't read this yet. No, you haven't read it yet. Um, it brings that home because what this book is, is it's, you could definitely use it in feeding therapy, but it's for all children. And it's based on the journey to adventurous eating by using animals. So every page shows how animals eat. And on the gorilla page, there's this, um, there, there's a family of gorillas and the, the text reads gorillas like to go out to eat. They travel to a different spot in the jungle every day and always dine with other gorillas called a troop. It's like going to a fun restaurant with friends and family every single day. Do you eat at restaurants for every meal? No, you are not a gorilla, but you are totally fun. And, <laughs> and, and then in the back of the book, I have a picture of each animal in the appendix specifically for the parents. And one of the things I talk about there is what you just said, which is talk to your kids about the importance of dining together and that going out to a restaurant is fun and exciting. And we get to try new foods and we like to get to really focus on family and fun during that time. But it can also be fun in our kitchen to cook together, um, to you know what, even if your little kiddo isn't ready to try the new food, make sure he's getting to decorate the platter with some herbs or, oh my goodness, I don't care. If you want to put some O-shaped cereal around the turkey, I don't care. Let him decorate it with something <laughs> and take it to the table. If the best he can do is eat the O-shaped cereal next to the turkey, that's huge. That's a big step in the right direction. <laughs> and you, and with Christmas just having passed, when you said O-shaped cereal next to the turkey, all I could see was the Christmas vacation scene from the National yes. Lampoons <laughs> when there was the cat food in the jello. And I almost, oh my God, I almost snorted. I was trying so hard not to laugh. Okay, O-shaped cereal is fine, people. Cat food is not. No, cat food is not. <laughs> <laughs> no kibble. Sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, that's... I Okay, so I need to get this book. I, I will... I, is it on Amazon? It is. It's on Amazon. And at the time of this broadcast, we um, anticipate it will also be in Spanish. So if you just go to my author page on Amazon, Melanie Potok, or you just search the name, You Are Not an Otter, it'll pop up for you on Kindle and in paperback. It's also available through any bookstores or your local library, but it's fairly new. So if you really need a copy right away, I think that's probably the quickest route. Mm. This is, I, I like the animal analogies. We, we use the, um, the animal poop book. Yeah. Um, everybody who, so do you. That's how we convinced um, 
um, both of our tiny humans that it was okay to poop in the potty. So um, I appreciate the animal analogies for PO consumption. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So I, we have to be respectful of our time because I know that we will have um, more questions tonight, but I do have another question that I want to get in. Um, What are your, some, what are some of your top takeaways from other cultures to make mealtimes more successful? And, and this one, this is slightly loaded because like in Michelle land, we just put our tiny humans in a Chinese immersion school this school year. Mm -hmm. And, um, that has been so delightful. One, they are talking in Chinese to each other and mommy speaks English and redneck English. And I have no idea what they're saying. And they have figured this out and that has had dire consequences. <laughs> but um, they have one of their school lunch options is always they have an English lunch and a Chinese lunch every single day when they go down the lunch lunch, which I think is really, really cool. Um, but it's it's been neat to see their evolution because of this program. So, I mean, I, now I know a little bit more about that culture, but what does it look like in other cultures? I'm so excited about this. Yeah, I, it's something I've been very interested in for a long time. As a matter of fact, when um, I wrote Raising a Healthy, Happy Eater with my co-author, uh, I was mentioning Namali Fernando, she's a pediatrician. Uh, one of the things we wanted to be sure to put in that book is how children eat all around the world. And I'm glad we did because to be honest with you, it taught me a lot. One of the very first pictures we put in there is this beautiful mom from Sri Lanka. And she's got the little toddler on her hip and she's got her hands, like literally three fingers deep in that baby's mouth just with smushed up food. So whatever she's eating, Mm. she just added a little bit of puree to it. She smushed it up with her fingers and just feeds the baby from her fingers to his mouth. And I thought the the beauty of that is they're face to face. It's a family Mm. mealtime. They're eating the same foods just in a safe manner. And that little kiddo is also learning to eat spices and flavor and flavor, which we so, you know, we just love to see that from other countries. We don't tend to do that as much in the United States. One of the other examples we have in that book are the indigenous people of Alaska. They feed their babies whale blubber. (laughs) And yeah, they do. And they still do that to this day. So we're not going to see that a lot here in the mainland, of course, of the United States, but it does open up a beautiful opportunity to talk to families from other cultures and say, you know, I was reading the other day about how in Alaska, if you are one of the indigenous people there, you may actually have been raised on whale blubber. And many of the children are actually fed some of that as baby food. Do you have anything like that in your heritage, in your your country? Perhaps if you're recently new to the country, or perhaps your parents came to this country and you were raised here. Do you remember certain foods from your family mealtimes? Tell me a little bit more about what it was like when you were a child around family mealtimes. What do you remember most? And when I have that conversation with families, I not only learn what their, their, their thinking is or their schema around family mealtimes, 
But I also learn whether the parents have two totally different ideas about what family mealtime should look like today. Because we often don't, you know, marry or, or partner up with someone from the exact same past culture. Mm -hmm. And that's the beauty of our country right now. You just had an excellent illustration of that with the school that you're sending your kids to. So that that meshing of cultures can actually begin to shift the relationship around food in a positive or an unfamiliar, almost negative way. And part of our job as feeding specialists is to learn more about those other cultures and figure out how we can bridge the gap so that everyone gets back to happier mealtimes. Okay. There was, I don't know if you've heard of this book. It's called Napoleon's Button, 12 Molecules That Changed the Course of History. Have you heard of that? Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, okay. This is, this is my light reading. That, that's, the history of molecules, folks. That's what I like to read when I'm not being an SLP. Okay. But in this book, they talked about this one, this one spice heat. And I can't remember how, I don't know how to say it without a twang. Cap, capstation? Cap, oh, capstation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So what they did in the, um, they um, reviewed research articles around this particular molecule. They gave women in labor, and I would love to have seen somebody try to convince me to do this when I was in labor, they gave them a pill and it was basically consolidated cap- capsation. And after the baby was born, they found it present at the molecular level in the placenta. That's right. That's right. I read that. I, I, I know that study. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we're literally hardwired for the flavors that we were raised on which is because, I mean, we swallow amniotic fluid in utero. Like we have that taste. If it's in the placenta, we're getting it. And I think that this is just beautiful. And so when I, when I go to patients' houses and I'm doing my evals, I always ask them to take me through to um, their uh, kitchen and show me um, what spices they have in their spice rack. Yeah. Because I have I have found that a lot of times families are afraid to add spices to the baby food. They're they're afraid to. They they feel like they have to go right down the baby aisle between stage one, stage two, stage three, a crawler or a sitter, or a crawler. Right. And, and veering off of what marketing says is is fearful. Yeah. And so. Folks, go to your families. Go ask them to go in the kitchen. Get in there. Look at their spice rack. See which spices are at the front, which ones are running low. Those are probably the ones that they use the most. Um, I right now am on a huge um, everything but the bagel seasoning blend. I'm pretty much putting it on everything. And um, red chili pepper flakes, much to the youngest son's um unmerriment, but you know, the oldest one's okay. Um, the little one, red dragons love tacos. And he's pretty convinced that if I add red pepper flakes to anything, he will accidentally burp and then burn the house down. (laughs) 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 Yay for creative imagination. But those, but I mean, okay. So I have to be nosy. What's your favorite seasoning? 
My favorite seasoning is dill. I put it on almost every roasted vegetable. I put it in my macaroni and cheese. Um, I love dill, but I also love basil. I have a gigantic pot of basil on my kitchen windowsill. Even in the middle of winter, it grows so well. And interestingly enough, I've noticed that um, we were we were talking about the benefits of family meal times. There's also a lot of research around gardening. But many families don't have a garden anymore because either A, they don't have the space or B, they don't have the time. But if I introduce a windowsill garden, they get excited about that. And the little kids really, really love to see things grow. They're willing to pick off a basil leaf and, you know, smell their fingertips and pick up on that aroma. And sometimes they're even willing to give it a try because that... The, the difference between, I don't know if you know this, Michelle, but the difference between, say, lettuce or arugula or any of those leafy greens that we typically use in a salad and something leafy that we call an herb is because an herb, by definition, has a more intense flavor and it's more concentrated. And that's why we can chop it up, dry it and stick it in that jar that you're talking about. Well, surprisingly, a lot of children really appreciate that little extra punch because it it helps with that awareness in their mouth and they feel very safe because they can take the tiniest bite of it and still taste the flavor, which tells their brain exactly what's happening in their mouth because they get the aromatic or the flavorful feedback too, not just texture, not just the visual feedback, et cetera. So on my YouTube channel, as a matter of fact, I have a video that it's only about two minutes long that, that anyone can share with any of their families. And it's the research behind a windowsill garden and how planting a few seeds in a pot by the windowsill can really make a difference in helping a child learn to love a variety of flavors, including spices. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that so much. I garden so much. That makes my heart so happy. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm the, um, there's, I have one little booger I'm thinking of right now and his mom's really big into gardening, but we've never gotten him into the planting or the, um, I've never gotten him in there. Why? That's brilliant. Why didn't I, that you're, that's brilliant. I can't believe I, that thought never even crossed my mind. Well, you know it's okay because, yeah. because, you know, you can start those seedlings on the windowsill and then you can transfer them to a bigger pot or you can transfer them to the garden. And so every single week that you're treating these kids, there's something new to explore, whether it's in a pot or in a, a square foot garden in the back or three acres, whatever they happen to have, it changes every single week. And we know for sure too, that children who garden have better science achievement scores. And we also know that it reduces anxiety and they use gardening in a lot of mental health um, uh, programs to help both children and adults relieve their anxiety so that they can learn better. So naturally, it's going to help them learn to try new foods as well, because we know anxiety is a component of this. I, I'm just thinking the the OTPT overlap in the yeah. action of getting up, getting there, touching it, digging. The, I mean, I would not have thought at the beginning of this hour that we would have ended with gardening. That's crazy delightful right now. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh my stars. I need to schedule an OT co-treat. Like as soon as we're done, I'm going to send a late night text to one of my OT friends and be like, so what up? I got an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. All right. So I have to be respectful of our time because I know that we're going to have the questions that we need to get to, but, um, I know that folks are going to want to learn more. So how can they reach you and your fabulous self? Um, you do, I do know that you have a newsletter because, um, it's one of the things I enjoy reading when I, there's, I have one night a month that is obligatory wine bubble bath night. Um, and folks be careful not to drop your phone in the bubble bath during obligatory wine and bubble bath (laughs) night. But, um, I do enjoy your newsletters then, but, um, If folks want to reach you, how can they reach you? Well, there's a lot of free resources on my website. So that's where you're going to start. And my website is melaniepotock.com or mymunchbug.com. Both one and the same, same website. And when you, the moment that you click on my website, that newsletter sign-up sheet will pop right up for you. Put your email in. I really want to recommend that you use your personal email and not a hospital email if if you are working in a hospital because the firewalls at the hospital will prevent some of those from getting to you. So just a side note about that. When you pop onto my homepage at melaniepotok.com, in the upper right-hand corner, you're going to see all my social media accounts. Just click on those and follow me. Don't forget to follow my YouTube channel. Go in and subscribe. That's the key because at least once a week, you'll get a free video to your email inbox that'll talk about how to help children try new foods. And then um, every Monday night on my Facebook page, I do a free hour of tips on how to help kids become more adventurous eaters. They're called Mondays with Coach Mel because all of my kids call me Coach Mel that I treat because I'm their food coach. And then- I love that. Yeah, it's so fun. And then finally, um, in addition to YouTube and Facebook, please be sure to follow me on Instagram because I post infographics at least once a day there that are really fun to share with families and just keep the tips really simple and understandable and easy to implement. We want to start with easy, simple steps first, and then we expand from there. And last but not least, don't miss the free toolbox tab on my website free toolbox. And that's where you'll find over a dozen free downloads to help these kids in feeding therapy and even just typical picky eaters, because I know we all get calls about those kids as well. So much information there, melaniepotok.com. You'll find all my books and my children's CD and gosh, um, over 150 articles that I've written for CNN and New York Times and that sort of thing. So hope everybody will check it out, melaniepotok.com. Thank you. It's, um, huh. yay. I'm so happy that you came to start 2020 with us. Thank you so much. Well, this <laughs> right. just made my year and it just got started. So thank you. Yay. Okay. All right. I'm going to quit fangirling and I'm going to switch this over to questions. Hold on one second. Okay. So at the end of the day on Saturday, January 25th, To wrap up the Feeding Matters Conference, we are going to go out on a high note, celebrating success into professional group strategies for expanding food choices for children with pediatric feeding disorders, presented by Chantal Lessard and Carrie Owen. Uh, These lovely 
speakers are coming from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, and they're going to review steps and supports available to professionals on treating individuals that have pediatric feeding disorders. I hope that you guys make it to end on a high note for the 2020 Feeding Matters online all virtual conference. Thanks. See y'all there virtually. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Bye.